Chapter 21. How was last week, by the way? Was last week, uh, it was intense last week, no? <laughs> Getting a little bit of a taste of, of studying, of studying Hasidus in, in a, the philosophy of Hasidus. The deep teachings of Hasidus. Okay, so, let's get our bearings again. Oh, I got a little snack here. Okay. So let's get our bearings again, and then we will, um, then we'll jump into the new chapter. So we want to understand better the love that every single Jew is born with, that we all have inherently, innately, we're born with it. That every single Jew loves God. And what does it mean to love God? What it means is that this is your most essential truth, and you want to be connected with God. You want to be connected to the truth of God, no matter what. That is what it means you love God. It means you just want to be part of God. And when the Jew, when the Jewish soul senses a existential threat to the bond that you have with God, the soul right away jumps into action and um, does whatever it takes, including death, to avoid what it will perceive as a severance. So the soul will do whatever it takes not to sever the relationship with God. So... <clears throat> In chapter 20, last week's chapter, we said, okay, let's try to understand the love that this soul has for God. Or in other words, this soul sees something. This soul gets something. What is this soul's reality? What we do know is that the most important thing to the soul is that God is one. The thing that the soul is willing to die in order to not do is to not serve idols. So that is the first two commandments of the Torah. I am the Lord your God, you shall only have one God, and then do not have any other gods. So that becomes the cornerstone of your soul. Your soul cares most deeply about that. So the author then said, well, what, what exactly do we believe? What does my soul believe when we say that we believe in only one God? So the author said, and this is what we introduced in the last chapter, we don't only believe that there's only one God. We don't only believe there's an only God. We believe that there is an onlyness of God. Not only that God is one, not only that God is only, but he's the one and only. Not only the one and only God, the one and only thing that exists. Which means we see a world full of things. Right? How many billions of atoms are there, are there even in one single human body? <laughs> so there's lots of different things and stuff and particles and fragmented pieces. That's our perception of the world. Comes Judaism and says, no, the only thing that exists is God. So how do we make sense of that? So what the author of it did in last chapter was, he said like this, look. All of creation, all of reality, all of existence... The Torah describes that as God's speech. That all of creation is God's speech. So let us use that analogy to understand this concept. And what the Alter does is, he says, let's take a human speech. Let's take one word that a human being ever once said. When you start comparing, when you start putting that one word into context of the larger human being, you will see that the existence of that word is greatly diminished to the point that it becomes like absolute nothing. And that was something that we went into in depth in last class. And the idea is, yes, I know that you see your world, but if you would see it in context, if you would see the larger picture, if you would see the world in relativity in relation to the larger context the world actually would turn into not nothing but like nothing it loses its own thing within a larger context it is a thing but you can't compare this thing to the other thing now let me just remind you because it can be important again for this chapter i want to review with you again what the ultimate taught us in last chapter the process of how words emerge from within us. So the way it works is like this. The very 
Genesis is a mental awareness. We have to have a mental awareness that something is good. Or we have to have a mental awareness that something is bad. Or we have to have a mental awareness that this is an object to be loved. Or a mental awareness, this is something which angered me. I have just experienced shame. So the very first thing is those neurons have to fire off in your brain. Oh, a mental awareness, which is usually subconscious. You're not going to actively realize that you are thinking about this. It just hits you. Like an example is shame. Shame is an emotion. You feel shame. But before the emotion of shame, there was the awareness of shame. You have to be aware that you were just put in a situation of shame. And you have to realize that. If somebody shamed you and you never realize it, you'll never be ashamed. Why? Because you have no mental awareness. So the first thing is, in your chachma, in your mind, you have to have this awareness. Once you have an awareness, then you can start feeling that awareness. Then the heart starts reacting to the recognition of the mind. The mind became aware, this is something I should love. And then the heart could start creating an emotion of love towards that object. So first is the intellect, the mental awareness. Then there becomes the emotion of the heart. And then what happens is we start thinking about it. Which means we start actively, consciously processing this feeling. I feel something in my heart. Now let's think about it. And that is where the author says we start creating words. We start creating structure. We start creating a construct for the emotion. The emotion itself has no words. The emotion itself is pure. It's just a feeling of the heart. Like we learned in last week's chapter, a feeling doesn't have a language. You can't feel in Japanese, and you can't feel in English, and you can't feel in Hebrew. It's beyond the language. You can think about a feeling in a language. So words only come when you start thinking about it. That's the third step, active thought in the mind. After thought, then there's speech. So that's the four-step process. Mental awareness, emotion in the heart, thinking and giving words to the thought and or to the emotion, and then actually speaking it. And what the author did in the last chapter is if you take one word that you said and compare one word to each of those four steps, to the ability to speak, to the ability to think, to the emotion itself, to the recognition of the emotion itself, which gave birth to the emotion, that word starts becoming less and less significant to the point that it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't add, it doesn't subtract. That is the idea. And a little bit of, a, of, a, of, a, of an analogy to this idea that something exists, but it loses any sense of existence when you put it in a larger context. It's like taking a drop of water and throwing it into the ocean. So if you have one drop of water on a table or in a little cup, that one drop of water is very significant. You could measure it, you could weigh it, you could do something with it. And you take that, that, that one drop of water and throw it into the ocean. What happens to that drop of water? Does it still exist? Yeah, it still exists. <laughs> that, you know, the matter of that water, you know, it didn't go anywhere. But that, wa- that, that, that drop of water loses any sense of existence, of identity, of independence. Of, of It's not a drop anymore. Now it's an ocean. And that drop within the ocean, it didn't add to the ocean. It didn't subtract to the ocean. It didn't do anything. One drop is so insignificant within a larger context that it just it's nothing. So that is a little bit of an analogy of this idea. One word relative to your ability to speak. One word relative to the thought that gave birth to that word. One word compared to the emotion which gave birth to that word. One word compared to the mental awareness that would eventually give birth to that word. That word becomes like nothing. Dear friends, chapter 21. Very, very critical chapter of Tanya. It's, again, it's a little bit deep, but it's okay. Meaning, <laughs> I want to tell you something. When you learn Hasidus, when you learn deep stuff, you got to be willing to not understand things. And I'm talking from your own experience over here, which means if you insist on understanding everything, you'll never learn. 
You'll never be able to make progress, and you'll become very easily disappointed. Learning Hasidus means you're learning a very deep, godly teachings. You're, you're learning the deepest parts of Torah. There's going to be things you understand. There's going to be things you only understand a little bit. There's going to be things that you understand better. I'll tell you very something. I'll tell you something very honestly. You ready for this? I told Mushki today that I realized. I realized last night that until just this week, I never properly understood chapter twenty and twenty-one of Tanya. I've learned it many times. I've even taught it before. For some reason, when I was preparing and teaching it just now in this class. I felt that all of a sudden I started getting a lot of clarity and things that I was misunderstanding, now I feel I get it. These are hard chapters. They're very deep. So on the, on the one hand, sometimes the ideas are very simple. But to get to the depth of it, especially to the nuances of it, it takes time. And you can't give up. You can't, you can't be scared of learning something and saying, that was a little bit too much for me. <laughs> like, it's okay. Don't give up. So it's, um, that's just my little pep talk. When you learn chassidus, you have to really be willing to that was actually one of the very first pieces of advice. A very great teacher of Hasidus who passed away by now. He was from like another generation. His name was Rabbi Melech Tzwibel. Rabbi Melech Tzwibel, he looked like an angel. He was an angel. He was such a special Jew. Um, he was my teacher in Morristown, New Jersey. I remember I asked him this question. I was learning, the, I was learning some, of the, uh, some of the mimers, the mimorim, the deep, deep Hasidic teachings of the fifth Chabad Rebbe. The Fifth Chabad Rebbe taught, taught teachings which are hundreds of pages long. Just a, ser- a, session, just a series of 10-page essays. One, and each one continues and goes deeper, one after the other. And I wanted to finish it. I wanted to learn it. It's one of the most important piece, texts of, in Hasidus. And I, I spoke to, to, this, to my mentor, Rabbi Tzwibel. And I said, you know what the problem is? I learn it, and I just don't know so many concepts. He says something, I just have no clue what he's talking about. As a 16-year-old, a 17-year-old, 17-year-old boy then. He says, don't worry. As long as you get the basic point, you're good. Just make sure you get the basic flow. If there's three lines, just don't understand it, don't worry about it. You get the basic flow, that's fine. He says, in a later mimer, he's going to explain this idea that you don't understand here. Because he has to, he has to mention it here, but he's only going to really explain it later. So he says, when you learn 10 mimers and you start again from the beginning to review it, you'll see that now you understand so much more. Now you'll really start understanding the first teaching. So he says, he says just, just don't, don't worry about it. Just, just uh, try to understand whatever you can. Whatever you can't, just try to get the basic picture. And uh, it's a never-ending journey. And I really feel that. Tanya, there are, no matter how many times I learn Tanya, every single time I learn it, especially when I put my head to it to really try to relate to it I get deeper depth I pick up new things to the point that I feel I never even knew this chapter before so that's um so that's just a little that was a little bit off the record a little bit off the cuff oh David David says that's why we are here okay I'm very I'm very touched and honored that's that's absolutely the attitude and uh yeah and, and you know I'm a little bit scared, I'll tell you honestly. We're starting on, on Wednesday, the Kabbalah course. And, you know, it's, it's not like Tanya. Tanya is very, very raw and authentic. And, uh, you know, we're doing the real deal. The Kabbalah course is, is made to be a little bit more approachable, especially for people who haven't been learning Tanya for the past two years, <laughs> um, even to the uninitiated. But I'm a little bit scared that there are going to be people who just are not going to be that interested in coming back after maybe a lesson or two or three. Because it's going to be a little bit too abstract. It's going to be a little bit, a little bit over their heads. And just like, oh, I forget it. And, and you'll never really succeed in learning unless you're willing to not understand things. There's a certain beauty to be willing to not understand something. All right, I learned it. I don't understand it. It's good. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a famous line in Jewish philosophy. The ultimate of knowledge is to know that you don't know. Sometimes you have to be willing to say, I learned it. I don't really know. Okay, in any case, let's, uh, let's learn, because we want to finish the whole chapter today. Says the author of like this. All right, we have the first premise. Creation is speech. Speech is nothing. <laughs> what is speech? God created the world with ten utterances. So let there be light, that's an utterance. In the Torah, there's ten. Bereshit is an utterance. It's like about a hundred words, a little bit over a hundred words. You know what I'm saying? It's not that much. 
So that's the analogy. Creation is just a hundred words. What value? How substantial? How much of a difference does a hundred words make? But the optimist then says it goes even further. It goes even further. And there is something about speech which is true about humans, but it's not true about God. And that's going to take this idea that there's only God is going to take it that much deeper. This chapter goes even deeper. Dear friends, let's begin. Chapter 21, God's Oneness, Part 2. This is a direct continuation from last week. And here we go. Part 1, the human and divine speech. Says the Alter Rebbe. Now, God's attributes are unlike the attributes of a man of flesh and blood. Meaning, yeah, we're using the analogy. We have speech. God has speech. God spoke the world into existence. But there's differences. <laughs> Our attributes are not like God's attributes. What's the difference? Says the Alter Rebbe. For when a person utters a word, the breath of that speech in his mouth is an independent entity from the person. An entity which can itself be felt and perceived. It leaves the person, becoming separate from its source, which is the ten powers of the soul itself. Now, let me explain. This is very practical, physiologically. This is both true physiologically and conceptually. A word that you say becomes a thing, a separate thing. And then it leaves you. Physiologically, what is speech? You have breath inside of you. You have human breath and you have energy inside of you. And then when you speak, you take some of that breath, you take some of that energy, you push it out of your mouth. And your mouth creates a very exact shapes and hits things and puts pressure exactly the right way. So like that, a audible sound, which forms into a word, gets pushed out. And that word is now a thing that leaves you. It is a thing. You form it, you take ear, you take energy, you form it with your mouth, with your throat, with your teeth. You, you make it, you push it out of you. It's an independent entity that leaves you. And you could feel it. You feel the energy of that word. It leaves you. After I give a class for an hour, I feel very tired. I've spoken things. I've released energy. Those words are leaving me. I'm making a word, and now it's leaving me. And it's also true conceptually, which is maybe a little bit harder to understand. We have raw emotions, which that's like part of our soul. How do I feel? That's very raw. And then we start creating words for it. So we're creating additional entities on top of our soul. There's the essence of our soul, and then we start creating words, created stuff, separate from the emotion itself to try to describe it or to try to talk about it. So we're making words, and those words become separate things, and then they leave our mouths. And it's like even true with the message of the word, right? Once a word leaves you, it takes on a life of its own. It's a real thing. A word is a word. Like there's a Soviet joke. You want to hear a joke? It's a Soviet joke. I don't know who said this. Maybe Reagan said it. He, he, said, uh, he, he said most of the Soviet jokes. There was once a, uh, a Russian guy sitting in jail in Siberia. So somebody asked me, you know, how did you end up in Siberia? He said, I said one word. I, one word got me thrown into Siberia. What was the word? He says, every single year they have the, uh, like a, 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 a parade, a celebration that celebrates the, uh, the Bolshevik Revolution. And uh, everybody celebrates by putting out pictures of all the great heroes. So you put up pictures of Lenin, of Stalin, whatever. So everybody's expected to have these pictures and you put it up in front of your home and you decorate the streets with these pictures. You celebrate the heroes. So he said, so he said you know, last year, when, it, when the, the celebration, we came, I took out my pictures that I had from last year, and I hung them up outside my house. And a police came knocking on my door and told me, get that picture of a dog. Take that picture of that dog off of your house. What happened? In between last year's rally and this year's rally, Stalin got rid of one of his big people. <laughs> so last year he was a hero. Now he's a dog. So the police told me to get rid of that picture of the dog. But I wasn't following the news, so I didn't know who he's talking about. So I said, which one? The police said, take down the picture of that dog. And I said, which one? So I got thrown to Siberia. <clears throat> so one word, he was thrown to Siberia. 
So a word, once you say it, is powerful. But the idea is even, even just physiologically. A word becomes a thing that leaves you. Okay, I just want you to remember those two things. Number one, a word becomes a thing. It's, a, it's an entity. And it leaves you. It leaves your body. You release it to the world around you. It even causes a little bit of global warming. I don't know, is that true? I imagine so, right? <laughs> a little bit of talking probably causes global warming, a little bit. They say when a cow burps, that's, that's global warming. Like 11% of global warming is just from the billions of cows burping. So I imagine humans speak a little bit. It's a little bit. The point is, you, you're creating something and you release it from you. Okay? That's how it is by a human. But says the Alter Rebbe, but that can't apply to God. You know why not? Very simple. When we speak, what are we doing? We're releasing energy, we're releasing breath, and we're pushing it outside to the world outside of us. You know what the only problem is by God? There's no outside of God. <laughs> where should God speak into where He is not? God is everywhere. That's the problem. Very simple problem. When we speak, we have, we have space to speak into. God doesn't have anywhere outside of Him to speak to. So says the author of it, but this is not the case with God, the Blessed Holy One. His speech is not separated from Himself. When we speak, it becomes separate. It leaves us. But God's speech is not separate from Himself since there is nothing outside of Him and there is no place empty of Him. <laughs> A technical problem. There's nowhere for God's speech to go where is outside of Him. So the author says, consequently, His speech is not like our speech, God forbid. This is a premise. And what the author is saying is, I know that we are going, we're running to town with this analogy. The Torah says God spoke the world into existence, so there's idea, God speaks, we speak. Hey, hey, it's not the same. And what the author is going to do in this chapter is he's going to teach us why God's speech is different. And the key idea is here, when we speak, it leaves us. When God speaks, it never leaves us. Okay? And we're going to keep on explaining that. We're going to flush that out. Let's continue reading parentheses, just like his thoughts are not like our thoughts. As the verse states, for my thoughts are not like your thoughts, and the verse states, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, etc. Okay. Now the author is going to explain what he just said a little bit better. You see, every analogy has where the analogy works and where it doesn't work. So for example, a preschool teacher is going to teach math. You can't teach math to little kids with numbers. Too confusing. So what do you use instead of numbers? Apples. Here's one apple. Here's one apple. How many apples do we have? Two apples. That's an analogy. We're creating an analogy between apples and math. Now, everybody understands that that analogy is not perfect. That analogy doesn't work with everything. <laughs> okay, well, it works with the numbers, with the amounts. It doesn't, but an apple is round. Math isn't round. Right? You get what I'm saying? So every analogy has where it works and where it doesn't work. Like they say, it's a deep joke, actually, but we're not going to get into the depth of it. There's a joke, there's like a whole genre of Jewish jokes called jokes from Chalem. You know what I'm talking about? The silly people of Chalem. Chalem was a town in Poland. And for some reason, I don't, know, I don't have any clue why, they decided to stereotype the town of Chelem to be this wacky, foolish city where everybody was really, really dumb. And uh, so there's a Jew from Chelem who wants to fool. He's always trying to ask his, his townspeople a riddle that tricks them. And he was never successful. So he came up with a riddle. He was trying to come up with his own riddle. He came up with a riddle. He goes to, he goes to the shul. One morning in Chelem, he goes to the shul and says, I got a riddle for you guys. What is purple, hangs on a wall, and has and it has two eyes? No, no, hangs on a wall. Purple has to. They say we have no clue. He says, oh, see, I got you. I finally asked for a riddle. Nobody could give me the right answers. They said, news for what is it? He said, it's a piece of herring. They said, a piece of herring? A piece of herring isn't purple. So he said, well, this piece of herring was purple. They said, but, but herring is not hanging on a wall. He says, well, this piece of herring was hanging on a wall. They said, but, but, but a piece of herring doesn't have eyes. He said, well, this piece of herring had eyes. <laughs> okay, that was a digression. The point is, every analogy has where it works, where it doesn't work. 
So when we say that God's creation of the world is speech, it doesn't mean God literally used a mouth and spoke. We're trying to describe a process. And that is true about every single metaphor in the Torah. We're trying to describe a process. We're trying to describe something. And it's the essential quality of that description or of that metaphor that we apply to God. But it doesn't mean in every single aspect. Here's an example. The Torah is always using, it's called uh, anthropomorphics. The Torah is always using human terms to describe God's activities. Like God took the Jewish people out of Egypt with an outstretched arm. So does that mean that literally God, this massive arm came and took the Jews out of Egypt? Is that what happened? A big godly hand came? No. It's trying to describe to you something. Which is what? What is the concept of an outstretched arm? Force. Power. Embrace. So it doesn't mean that literally God's arm was here. It means an idea. God with tremendous force, took the Jews out of Egypt. So too, there's the verse of the Torah, that the eyes of the Lord your God are upon the land of Israel from the beginning of the year till the end of the year. Does that mean that literally there's two big eyeballs in heaven staring down at Israel? No, it's a concept. What does it mean the eyes are constantly upon it? It teaches us about providence, supervision, care, you know, special attention. So that's what it means. God is giving special attention. God is always watching Israel. It doesn't mean literally God's eyes, physical eyes. So when we say God spoke the world into existence, we don't mean that God took a massive megaphone and said, there be light! and there was light. It doesn't mean God spoke it, you know, with a big mouth. And What it does mean is that conceptually, what is speech conceptually, that gives you an understanding of what creation was. So what is that concept of speech? Not literal speech. What is that concept of speech? With that, that is the metaphor, that is the meaning of the metaphor. When we say, oh, God spoke the world into existence, this is what it means. So here the author is going to explain to us a little bit better. Top of, top of page 162. The term speech is used only metaphorically. In Scripture, in reference to God's speech, in the following sense. So when do we say God spoke the world to existence? This is what the metaphor means. Just as through lower human speech, a person discloses to his listeners what was hidden and concealed in his thoughts, the same is true above with God, the Blessed Infinite One. When light and energy emerges out of him, from concealment to disclosure, to create worlds and energize them, it is called an act of divine speech. Let's process that. Speech is the act of revelation. I am thinking something, but you don't know what I'm thinking, and then I speak it, I'm now able to communicate it with you. I'm actualizing it. I'm taking something which was in potential within me, and now I am shearing it to be something in the real world. The essence of, of communication is found in speech. That's what allows human beings to share something outside of themselves. So, so too, when God took whatever he has inside of us, inside of himself, his creative force, the dream of having a world, and then God acted upon it, that was like an act of divine speech. That's the meaning of the metaphor. That God actualized, God, God revealed the potential of a creation, of a world. Continues the Alter Rebbe, and this is precisely the process signified by the ten verbal utterances through which the world was created, right? That's what it means that God created the world through speech, through ten utterances. That he revealed the power, the energy, the godly potential to create a world. He made it happen. It became a real thing. Just like when you speak, something is emerging from within you. Now it's real. Now it has come into the real world, Right? You can try somebody in a court of law for saying something. You can't try something in the thought of law in the court of law for thinking something. Thinking something is still within your own world. It's inconsequential to, to reality. Oh, you said something, that's already where things start becoming real. And the author says, so too with the rest of the Torah, the Navim, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings of the Torah, 
which the prophets perceived in their prophetic visions. They also represent a disclosure and a revelation from God and are therefore referred to as God's speech. This is what, when we, when we use the word speech, it doesn't mean literally God is getting on top of a, of a soapbox, like I said earlier, and giving orders to create the world. It is a create, it's an act of revelation from God, and that's the meaning of it. So that is what the metaphor means. That is where the metaphor lines up. That's where the analogy lines up. But where does the analogy not line up? Here's where the author continues. Yet, while human and divine speech both share the property of disclosure, but his so-called speech and thought are always totally united and one with him, unlike human speech, which departs from a person. This is a critical idea. When we speak, we create a word, and then we push it out of us. So speech means we are releasing something to be outside of us, to be something not us. So there's me, and then there's the word that I said. By God, nothing ever leaves him. And that is where his speech is not like our speech. When we speak, it must leave us. That's the definition of speech. We're releasing that energy. It then goes into the world, physiologically, conceptually, it is now a separate entity. By God, he speaks, he creates, he reveals, but it stays within him. But the author goes even further. Before you say a word, even before you say the word, and it's in your mind, that word is still a separate entity. Meaning there's the emotion, and then there's the word. There's the feeling of your soul, and then there's the word that you're going to use to describe it. But the word is not the soul. The word is not the emotion of the soul. The word is a separate thing. Even that is not, even that is not the case with God. <laughs> when we speak, we have to create a new entity and then push it outside of us. So it becomes separate and it goes outside. By God, it never leaves God, and it never becomes separate from God, even within God. So what the author of it says is, think about a word before you even said it. Think about a word before you even thought it. It's the word the way it is still in the potential of the emotion. Go back there. Go back to the emotion itself before you thought about it. Or even go back to the mental recognition of the emotion. Where there's for sure no words there. The word is only there in potential. How united is that word with you? How indistinguishable is that word from you? How not separate? How, right, the word is united. How united is that word with you? That is how one and united the world is with God. Don't think that God's world is like our words. Our words become separate. They leave us. They go outside of us. They become a separate entity. Good to see you. Good to see you. Okay. A uh, little bit of a, uh, we'll take a little bit of a break for a minute and we'll be right back. So there, friends. Okay. Sorry about that. Let's get back into the swing of it. Whew. Okay. So this was what the author of it teaches us. Our speech becomes something separate and then leaves us. God's speech never becomes separate. It's united with his very essence and self and being, and never leaves him. So let's read. Let's start again from the from the paragraph yet. Says the author, but yet, while human and divine speech both share the property of disclosure, but his so-called speech and thought are always totally united and one with him, unlike human speech, which departs from a person. God's speech is, for example, like the human speech and thought as it exists before it is actually spoken, while it is only in potential, while still in a person's chachma and intellect, or in a desire and craving of the heart before it arises from the heart to the brain to be pondered upon linguistically. At that pre-linguistic level, 
the letters of the thought or the spoken phrase, which will later evolve from that longing and desire or desire, are only in a state of potential in the heart. That's a lot of words, but it's basically saying this idea. When you go back to the way the idea is, in the emotion or in the awareness, the mental awareness, what do you have there? You don't have a word. You don't see the word itself. The word is lost in the emotion. The word is there and only in a state of potential within the emotion. So the word is not something separate, and the word doesn't didn't leave the person yet. It is united and one within the person. Says the author Rebbe, at this level, in the emotion or in the mental awareness, at this level, the letters are completely united with the root, which is the chachma and intellect of the brain and the longing and desire in the heart. And this is a precise analogy for how God's thought and speech remain totally one with his blessed essence and self, even after his speech has emerged to actually create worlds. It retains the same level of unity with him as it did before the worlds were created. To him, there is absolutely no change at all. It's a stunning idea. It's an absolutely stunning idea. Whatever we perceive as creation, the world, ourselves, this is not something other than God. This is not something outside of God. It's not even its own entity within God. It's not a separate entity. It's one within God. It is one with God. It is inseparable from God. There is no way to even make it different, even conceptually on any whatsoever level. So this goes so much deeper than the last chapter. Last chapter, we were saying you exist. You exist as a separate entity from God, but just your existence is so, so minuscule and so <laughs> inconsequential within the larger context that it's as if you're nothing. Here we're saying, no, you never left God. Nothing you know ever left God. Nothing you know is even in any way a separate entity from God. It's an unbelievable idea. There's nothing other than God. And to God, creation didn't make a change. God didn't make anything new. <laughs> it never left God. This is radical ideas. God created us, and yet we're still within God. God created us, but we're not a separate entity from God. We're not even a separate entity within God. You know, this totally goes against any of our senses. This is totally not our experience. We all human beings have a sense of consciousness, meaning we exist. The very idea that you have a consciousness that you exist is itself in denial or in defiance of everything we've just learned. If you feel that you exist, that means that you are a thing. We all feel separate from God. We all get introduced to God. Oh, that's nice. One, you know, once upon a time, either we were children or we were adults, somebody introduced us to God, a parent, a teacher. And then maybe we decided to make room for God in our lives. But God is always going to be something else other than me. And God is always going to be not such a overwhelming existence in our lives can you imagine the very energy of our lives that's that's pulsing through us this is god nothing other than god we are within god but we just totally don't sense that there's like a really big disconnect between the truth that we're learning here and the human senses <laughs> so says the author but yeah that's by design and that's how the chat is going to conclude the two different perspectives there's the truth the way it is from God's perspective, and there's a the truth the way it is from our perspective. And God does not allow us to see and feel the truth. We can learn about this in books, but it'll never be a, a part of our perceivable reality. Let's read. Part two, two different perspectives. Says the author, middle of page, middle of page 163. Two different perspectives. Says the alternate. Any sense of change and separation from God is only from the creation's perspective. Uh -huh. Only from our perspective there's differences. The creations who receive their life force from God's speech, which has become manifest with the creations of the worlds, 
and is invested within the creations to give them life. So anything on the receiving end of creation, ourselves, all of nature, we perceive it as something separate from God. How did that happen? Let's read this next paragraph. This creation's perspective came about by God's light becoming downgraded and diluted through a gradual devolution process, through the cause and effect chain of spiritual worlds with numerous diverse diminishments called tsimtsumin of the light to the point where creations are able to receive their life force and creative energy without their separate consciousness and identity being erased. That was very wordy. Here's the central idea. God didn't take his raw energy and give it to us. We're not living off of God's raw energy. God watered it down, diluted it, contracted it. All these types of different procedures and processes. All so that what? Also that when we live off of God's energy, <clears throat> when we live off of God's light, we shouldn't even realize it. It's like that it doesn't overwhelm us. Because if we would see that we are nothing other than God, would we be able to continue to exist? <laughs> would we be able to continue being a conscious? Would we, would, would, we, would we be able to hold on to a sense of identity, of consciousness, if you know that you're really nothing? I'll give, you an, I'll give you an analogy. I'll give you a metaphor. This is wild. Think about it. Walt Disney created Mickey Mouse. He didn't only create Mickey Mouse. He created everything about Mickey Mouse, his world, his relationships, his environment, the events in his life. Now, imagine if Mickey Mouse actually had a consciousness. And imagine if, if Mickey Mouse actually had a sense of identity. And we know that Mickey Mouse is nothing other than a two-dimensional animation, nothing other than the figment of Walt Disney's imagination. But Mickey Mouse doesn't know that. And Mickey Mouse is walking around in his two-dimensional world, and he has relationships, and he has stuff going on, and he has bills to pay, and his life is as real as we feel our, our lives are. He has no clue that he is nothing other than than uh, uh, than a uh, animation, that there's nothing real about his life. Anything that he thinks is real, anything that he knows is literally just a creation of Walt Disney on a piece of paper. All right, Walt Disney. So Mickey Mouse is walking around blissfully in his world. Okay. Now, now imagine if one day Mickey Mouse gets to see the truth and he gets to see that he is not real. And every single detail of his life was invented and written on a piece of paper by Walt Disney. And really nothing is real. And really, anything that he has is simply because Walt Disney decided to write it on a piece of paper. And if Walt Disney decides to forget about him tomorrow, his whole world just stop, is going to stop to be whatever. Just What will happen to himself? What would, ha what would happen to his psyche? Can he even continue to function? Like, what happens to the human brain if the illusion of consciousness, if the illusion of independence, if the illusion of identity becomes compromised? You basically will, you won't be able to exist. You'll stop functioning and you'll die on the spot. That's just psychological what's going to happen. You can't, you can't continue being a, a conscious, independent ego and then to realize that you're actually nothing. You're nothing. You are not real. So if we would have a sense of who we really are, we would be able to see how we are within God, we're nothing other than God. Nothing is real, nothing, all the laws of nature, we think they're real, it's not. We, would, we wouldn't be able to continue. We wouldn't be able to function as human beings as we know it. We wouldn't be able to live lives of, as, as a conscious identity with an ego. But God, God wants us to live a life of a regular human being. So what God does is, He does all these processes that we can live in this environment of God's world, not separate from God, united with God, within God, and to totally not feel it. And that's by design. Continues the Alter Rebbe, we're at the bottom, page 163. All these diminishments are for the purpose of hiding God's face a process of hiding and obscuring the light and life energy, 
which come from God's speech, so that it should not be manifest so intensely that the lower world would not be able to contain it, causing them to lose their sense of independent consciousness. This is the idea, the hiding of God's face, that we are living and breathing and functioning God's energy. If we can move, that's God's energy. There's nothing in our world which is not God. And we, it, it's totally lost on us by design. God doesn't want us to see it. Because if we would see it, it would be too intense. We wouldn't be able to function. Life would not be able to continue the way we know it. So God did this. He hid his face. That we are living godly energy and we have no clues from God. Can you imagine if we felt it, that literally the energy within our arm is God? Nothing is happening with not out for God. Our lips are moving. That's God's energy. You know, <laughs> it would be a whole different life. It would be a whole different experience. So God hides that from us. And the altar continues, this is why it appears to the creations that the light and life force of God's speech that is invested within them is as if it were something separate and distinct from God's essence and core. That it issues forth from God just like human speech becomes separate from the person. Uh-huh. We think that God is somewhere out there and he created us. It's like, you know, God on the table. God created us. You know, you make something on a the table. There's you and then there's a the table that you're working and making something on. So we, yeah, even if somebody says, yeah, I know everything comes from God. But it comes from God. That <laughs> God's there and we're here. That's, that's, the, that's the illusion. That's our illusion. But, let's continue. But from God's perspective, there has been no diminishment, no hiding or concealment that would hide or conceal anything from him. It's a one-way mirror. The illusion, the lie that we are all living, that we are something other than God and that God is not here, and that there's another reality other than God, that is a lie, it's an illusion, it's fake, it's fraud. It's only because God is forcing us to not see the truth. From God's perspective, it's all one with God. From God's perspective, there is nothing other than God. And where you don't see God, that is also God. <laughs> that is God hiding within himself. Let's continue reading. And this is unbelievably powerful closing lines. To him, darkness is the same as light. As the verse states, even the darkness does not obscure you. Why? For all the diminishments and filters are not something apart from him, God forbid. Rather, they are like the snail whose garment, the shell that hides it, is a part of its body. When you look at a turtle, you think there's a turtle and then there's a shell. And the turtle is hiding under the shell. And then when the turtle goes under the shell, the turtle is hiding. What's the truth? No, you're so, that's foolish. The shell is the turtle. <laughs> when you're looking at the shell, that is the turtle. It's not a shell and a turtle, and the shell could go under the turtle. That is the turtle. According to Jewish law, you cannot use your hand as a yarmulke. Which means if you, if you don't have a yarmulke, so what do you do? Could you put your hand on your head? No. Because you can't cover yourself. <laughs> the idea of a yarmulke is a head covering. You is just more of you. It's not something covering you. So when we don't see God in this world, don't think that it's because there's another power at play that is hiding God. It's not like there's God and then there's Mother Nature and, you know, there's more Mother Nature in our lives than God in this world. No, where you don't see God, where you see a shell, that is, also, that is God. The darkness is God. He created that so that you won't see him. But where you don't see him, that is actually the same God. The God of revelation is the exact same God of the lack of God. The, 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 the God of being here is the same God of not being here. The darkness itself is God. Don't think that when you don't see God, that's not God, and then sometimes God will show up. Where you don't see God, that is just as much God as when you do see God. As the verse states, let's continue, as the verse states, for God, Havaya is God, Elohim, as is explained elsewhere. We use two names, two divine names to describe God. One is the Tetragrammaton, the four Hebrew letters Yud, He, and Vav, and He. And then there's the name Elohim, or Elokeinu. The first name is, con is considered the, God of the God's essence. 
we, we refer to it in Hebrew as Havaya. Havaya are those four Hebrew letters uh, scrambled. So there's a name Havaya, and then there's a name Elohim. And what do we say in the Shema? Hashem Elokeinu. The Hashem, the Havaya, is the same God as Elokeinu. Havaya is God's revelation. Elokeinu is God's concealment. Don't think when there's concealment of God, that's not God. That is the exact same God of revelation. God is everywhere, even where you don't know it. But that is God. And the altar therefore concludes, therefore, everything before him is literally considered as nothingness. Creation, reality, ourselves, our lives, what's important to us. It is not outside of God. It's not even something other than God. There's no separation. It's one with God. It's absolutely one with God. It's united with God. It's indivisible. The idea that we think we have a life going on and we have important things going on and there's forces at play that be, that is the illusion of living in a world where God created that illusion. Don't think that that's not God. Don't think there's anything other than God. Everything is God. Now this is the type of stuff, these, <laughs> this mindset is something that takes a lifetime to try to live with. You know, but one of the things that happens when you, when you try to live with this mindset is what happens, for example, when there's a decision to be made. God wants you to do something. The Torah tells you this is what you should do. But you don't see it that way. Reality doesn't show it to you that way. I can't do it. What's an example? Here's an easy example. We all struggle with this. I can't give charity. You know why? Practically, it doesn't work. I'm not doing as well right now. I gave too much. According to the Torah, this is God's world. 10% of your income has to go to charity. Any excuse, I know God wants me to do it, but I can't because of whatever, <laughs> whatever reality is getting in the way, that is buying into the lie. That is buying into the illusion. But it's a false illusion. The problem is that we live in a world of nature, but a Jew has to, has to see things from the, from the deeper truth. If it's God's world, then money is nothing. Nothing is anything. <laughs> it's, tap into a higher truth. See the real truth of, of life. And this is the real truth of what we mean when we say we believe in God, that God is one. It doesn't really mean that there's one God out there. It means there's literally nothing other than God. Nothing else in any what way possible. Nothing is outside of God. Nothing is separate from God. And dear friends, with that we conclude the second chapter in our deep, deep journey of understanding God's oneness, God's onlyness. And chapter 22 will continue down this road. So chapter 20, 21, 22 is teaching us the concept. In chapter 23 and 24 and 25, we're going to start applying this back to real life. So right now we're just learning about the concept, and we'll start learning how to live with this in, in, uh, in a little bit, chapter 20, 20, 23. So dear friends, with that, we'll finish for this, for this evening.